I am fascinated, intrigued, and honored you by may the have done what they said you did, but they are magnificent, they marvelous. Are. You need to know that you're okay just the way you are. You succeeded in you as a child. What you've been through matters. This podcast is designed for you. It's Love on a mission hope. in a world where human experience is lacking. My name is Ginger Wilk, and we're here to talk about that which matters. Welcome to That Which Matters. This is part two of an episode about authority figures and those in leadership positions. And what we talked about in the last episode is that the word authority can be so misconstrued based upon the experiences that we have had growing up. We can have negative associations. We can have positive associations. We can look at authority in a manner by which we think about where there's been abuse or where there's been neglect. We can look at it as an opportunity to impart to others and use as a gift to others. We need to understand that authority is something that can be used for the negative or the positive. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We highlighted some examples of people in authority who were able to really use a time, difficult time in their lives and in the time that they were under leadership positions where they chose to impart something very powerful and they chose to be people that were courageous. We use the quote from Braveheart, men will follow courage, not titles. Men don't follow titles, they follow courage. That's what was spoken in that movie. And so courage is a real important part of what authority is. And so when I think about authority, you know, I was thinking about on a local level, uh, when you think about judges, for instance, right? So judges have the ultimate decision in cases as it pertains to, you know, court and so forth and so on. And you can have prosecutors and state's attorneys and defense attorneys, and you can have the jury and you can have the media and all sorts of opinions, but the judge ultimately makes that final decision. And so that is a real place of authority that people have. And I've had an opportunity through the years of being able to observe um, a lot of court cases that have been in operation, and um, I've learned a lot. I absolutely am fixated on watching judges because I will often think about what would I say? What would? And I don't know much about the law at all, so I know that they have to stay within the confines of the law. Like there are specific things that they have to remain within, but I just think about it from a place of wisdom. If I were them, what would I say? I'm fascinated by it because they're in a place of authority and I don't know what they're going to say next. There's a couple of examples I want to give you. One is my brother. When he was a teenager, he was getting into a lot of trouble. He was, had gotten arrested, I think about three times or so um, when he was in high school can't remember if he had quit high school or if he was about to be expelled, but he was not doing well in high school. And I think it was his third arrest that he stood before the same judge now for the third time. And the judge had a decision to make, had the ability to be able to throw him in jail, had the ability to do a lot of things. But the judge looked at him and basically said, I'm going to give you a choice. Either you go and sign up for the military or you're going to jail. And my brother decided to sign up for the military and he ended up going in the Navy and he ended up doing extremely well in the Navy and he became a police officer and served for, I think, 35 years before he retired. And he often spoke about that judge because 
He became a police officer in the very town where he had been arrested and where he had been given that sentence. And he would see the judge from time to time. And they became almost sort of friends, friendly. And he would often tell this judge, you know, you saved my life. The decision that you made saved my life. And I think about that judge. I never met him. I was too young to even know what was going on. But whenever I reflect on that, I think about the fact that if that judge had a bad day or decided that he just wanted to go on a motion or where he just was plain old fed up, he certainly had the right to be able to raise my brother's bond and have him do time or sentence him to prison. But he chose to give him this opportunity and it changed not only my brother's life, but many, many lives that my brother was able to touch through what he did. And so that's an example of a person in authority who used it in a positive way. And then I think about recently, maybe a few years ago, I was able to observe court uh, going on. I was just sitting there observing and there was um, a person who came up to the judge and had been struggling with PCP or some sort of major addiction. And apparently based upon the little bit I heard, it had been a long time struggle. So apparently he had frequented going to court and the judge, a female judge in this case, decided that she was going to sentence him, raise his bond and have him go to jail. And what she said to him was, I know that there are other things that we could do here, but I truly believe that by raising your bond, I'm saving your life because this has become a life and death situation. So in that particular case, this judge used her authority to save his life because she knew that at the rate he was going, he probably would overdose and die. And so she decided to do that to save his life. It's the opposite of the other story, but in both cases, it was really taking a look at that person and understanding that somebody had to make a tough decision that was someday later going to be uh, brought back with a place of gratitude if that person ended up turning their lives around. The other thing I wanted to share about another judge, actually, was when I worked as a social worker, really like a counselor, pretty soon after I graduated from college, I worked with young girls who were in a residential treatment center. And I would have, you know, caseload. I would make sure that they had the clothing that they needed. I would meet with their families. I would meet with them individually. And at one point, there was this young girl who came to me on a Friday late in the day, and she had just arrived, and she was a mess in so many different ways. And I want to read you something that I wrote about her. I called her the Roadrunner. The caseloads of each social worker were not to exceed 17. That day, number 18, peeked her head into my door on a Friday, one hour before my departure. Everything about her cried out that she was battle-torn. Her hair was unkempt, adorned in institutional sweatpants, walls erected around her. Clearly, an hour would never have sufficed. Months or years it would take to undo the trauma she had endured in the system. She recalled about 14 foster homes, residential treatment centers, and group homes, some for a night, others more long-term. She didn't want empathy or sympathy or even understanding. She wanted one sentence and three seconds only, I will help you go back home. That's what she wanted. In one sentence and three seconds only, I will help you to go back home. 
I scribbled a chaotic, eclectic history on yellowed line paper looking at her blank stare. Tired, tattered, traumatized, I surrendered my writing utensil and said, I know so many people have let you down and I know that you don't know me at all, but can you trust me? Just give me a chance to help you. She ran away that night and I never saw her again. I wasn't surprised. I didn't blame myself. I blamed all of us. We failed her again and again, and she wasn't going to trust a 15th placement. Two weeks later, the wrongfully received notification arrived that stated that she was due in family court that Friday. The standard response was a phone call that stated that she had absconded. My response was to make arrangements to appear. Had my supervisor put all the pieces together, she would have strongly discouraged a full day at Manhattan Family Court. I did sit most of the day observing the childless mothers having rights terminated, the fistfights between the biological and stepfathers, devastated grandparents and confused children, not to mention the fresh divorces. The prosecutor called out our case and we conferred. I'm asking for a warrant for her arrest as she is in DCF custody. The child's attorney protested, I will not allow that. If she ran, it means she wants to be out of the system. I chimed in, she wants to go home. We decided to let the judge rule. My voice had been faint, but I was in debt to her fatigued heart cry. I felt as though I was there on a divine mission, a holy representation for a girl who I knew for 20 minutes. I learned that her mom was down south and at one point exhibited odd behaviors, the cause of the removal. I knew better. There had to be more. I also knew that she was no longer a small child and home was better than the streets. She had to find out for herself. She was in danger on the streets and in her soul. The case was called and the facts were heard. I was present. I had to be. It was one of the most Christian things I could do without a Bible or a collar. The judge heard all of us and listened for a solution. The warrant emancipated of a ghost girl. I weighed in. I had to. He paused and asked one foreign and overlooked question. Where is the father? Your Honor, said the prosecutor, he is deployed in Iraq. He's what? Your Honor, he has been overseas for four years and unavailable for questions. And the judge stated, if you think that I'm going to rule on an arrest for the daughter of a decorated soldier, you are sorely mistaken. This man is fighting for our country, and you want us to put his daughter behind bars? Where does the child want to be? Her lawyer chimed in, down south with her mother. I nodded. I rule on the child's return to her biological mother. I walked out of the courtroom with moist eyes and scrubbed hands. God spoke that day about an orphan on behalf of a soldier through a nobody who knew nothing. She was number 18 to me and number one to God. So this girl who had been through hell in the system, all she wanted to do was to go home and she kept running and running and running and Technically speaking, I wasn't even supposed to go to court for her that day, but I had the authority in my very limited years of experience and my very limited title. The one thing I had the authority to do was to go to court and to just tell the judge and the prosecutor what it is that this girl wanted, which was to go home to her mom. And God showed up in that courtroom. There was no preaching. There was no worship music. There was nothing in there that was holy except for the fact that God needed somebody to advocate for this girl. And that's what authority is. In the places where we have it, 
even in our very limited amount of authority where we have it, God wants to use it to be able to impart something. And I never forgot about that girl. I, all I know is that at some point when her lawyer was finally able to reach her, she was able to get some sort of a bus pass or ticket and she was able to go home. And that was worth the 20 minutes that I met with her that particular day. So these are amazing examples of judges who advocated in such a beautiful way. And it's not easy being a judge. I don't know what it's like, but I can't imagine. I know what it's like to make hard decisions. I can't imagine what it's like to make those hard decisions. But those are people who use their authority to really make a difference in people's lives. So people can have authority in so many different ways. I mean, it can be single moms raising children. Geez, there's so much value and honor to that. I always am amazed by the fact that there can be this very, very shy, let's just say, we'll talk about moms. It can be a very shy mom who maybe is just so quiet in, in her church Bible study or in her community group or in her college you know, classes that she's taking or at the grocery store. But when she has children, all of a sudden there can be powerful advocacy. The leader in her can be awoken by the fact that she has the authority over these children and whatever that is going to mean, if it's going toe to toe with a bunch of bullies, if it's, you know, standing between her child and a car that's coming too fast down the road, that authority is going to rise up. You don't have to have these major titles or educations or whatever the case may be, but wherever you have authority, you have the ability to use it in a, in a way that is going to be impactful. It can be ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And so I want you to think about Jesus. Um, he always taught in a way where people listened to him. And in Matthew 7 and 29, it said, Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now that could be so insulting to the teachers of the law. They're talking about the high priests. They're talking about people who have gone to school for years, highly educated, highly experienced. And they're saying that Jesus, who didn't go through any formal training, was one who spoke with authority and not like the ones that spoke in the temples. And that's because there's a big difference between experience and true authority that comes from God and book knowledge. If there's one thing that I've learned in the years of going through my education process, and I've learned a lot, and I'm so grateful for the education that I have, but the times where I have been able to move out in a place of authority has not been by anything that I've read out of a book. I'll tell you that much. That move I made with that girl in bringing her to court or going to court on her behalf, that wasn't in the book. That was even against what I should have been doing, but it was authority that God gave me. He was not going to let me sleep on that. He was going to make sure that I followed through with it. And so there's a big difference between experience and book knowledge. Jesus had authority because he knew who he was and he knew what he saw. And I love the story of when Jesus was being tempted, not this part of it, but the second part, when he was being tempted by the enemy, by the, by Satan, he was being tempted by him. He was standing on top of this mountain and Satan is basically questioning who Jesus is. You know, if you're really the son of God, 
cast yourself down from this mountain or cast yourself into these rocks or turn these stones into bread. He kept questioning who he was. He wanted to break down the authority that Jesus had by being God's son, by being God. And Jesus was tired. He was fasting for 40 days. Think about how tired and hungry and hot he was in this situation. And then he's being just completely mocked and broken down by the enemy. And once he returns and he does, you know, he does pass the test. He, he returns these things back and forth with the enemy by quoting scripture. But what's greater than that is he returns from this whole situation. And now he's with his disciples and other believers. And all of a sudden he gets it. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Therefore, I have given you authority to bind everything that needs to be bound on earth and to loose and to tread upon serpents and scorpions. And, you know, some of these were in different places, but basically he got it. He was like, oh my God, I was there at the beginning. And I know that Satan was Lucifer and he was thrown down from heaven. And I was there when it happened. Now it's coming back to me. Now it's being revealed to me. And therefore I have the authority to give unto you that you can go and do all of these things. Basically our crises, our trauma gives us authority to speak powerfully and to help others. There's nothing more powerful than somebody who has gone through something that can help us through the things that they speak in a place of authority. It's authority because they've walked through it, not just because they've read about it. People don't want to hear about what we've read about or what the pat answer is to a trauma that we go through. Yes, it might be helpful here and there, but they want to hear from somebody who has actually experienced it. That's what's going to give them the comfort and the understanding and the hope. One of the things that Jesus was given authority to do was in Matthew 9 and 6. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's actually a big thing. I mean, we might think it's kind of small because it's Jesus and everything, but he had the ability to forgive sins. And I will never forget that one of the places where I worked in the social service field, there was this custodian who worked there, and he would come pretty much when everybody was leaving the office for the day. And he was such a sweet man. I always said hello to him. I remember there was this mug that I loved that had a picture of my niece on it and I had gotten coffee stains on it. It, it just was beyond repair. So I threw it away in the garbage and I just figured, you know, I'll get another one made up at some point. Well, one day I came in in the morning and he had taken it out of the garbage and bleached it and cleaned it and put it on my desk. Something that he didn't have to do just because he was such a sweet, sweet man, you know, and I, I just really never forgot that. But I don't know, maybe weeks, weeks later after that, I remember that I was leaving for the day and I walked out through the outside door and he was standing there smoking a cigarette. And I just talked to him a little bit. Can't even remember what his name is. It was so long ago, but I talked to him and he just seemed like he wanted to unload some things. And so I just listened and then he began to tell me that when he was at war, I don't know which one it was, I think it was Vietnam, but when he was at war, that at one point he accidentally killed one of his own, one of you know his troop members or whatever. It was a friendly fire, it was accidental, and he just began to unload about this with tears in his eyes. And 
I looked up at him and I said, your sins are forgiven. God has forgiven you for your sins. And he just began to weep. And I didn't expect to say that. And I was probably about 25 years old when I said it. You know, who am I to kind of walk out in my little skirt and shirt and, you know, my little bag for the day and to be able to just tell somebody that his sins are forgiven. But I was able to do that because the authority that we have from God gives us the ability to do that. And it set him free to hear that. He didn't have to knock on a church. He didn't have to set an appointment with a priest. He was able to get it right there where he needed it. God had him placed. And so the authority to forgive sins is amazing. Jesus had the ability to cast out evil, to heal, to grant eternal life, to judge, and to lay his life down and take it up again, to lay down his authority and take it up again. And he did do that. Jesus didn't take his authority in a way where it was abused. If anything, he washed his disciples' feet. That's how he showed what a leader he was, by being humble and by being a servant and doing something that was designed for someone that was meant to be lower class. To wash a person's feet was not considered something that a person in authority would ever do. But he did that as an example for others that are in authority to do the very same. So a lot of times authority is about servanthood. I want to really challenge all of us to use our authorities to help and influence others, to not uh, abuse or to neglect, but to do it in a way that we can change people's lives. We also have the authority to change the atmosphere. Did you know that? You can walk into a room and you can change an atmosphere. You can change it from sadness to joy or from chaos to peace or from bringing God's presence in a room where there isn't any of it. Um, we do have the authority to do that. Most times we just don't even think about it. We walk around all the time not really understanding what we have in our fingertips. And what I also want to mention is the authority in parenting. Parenting is definitely a way that people have authority, right? Parents set structure. They set order and safety in the atmosphere and a nurturing environment. At least that's what they should do. It's not always the case, but at least that's what they should do. All homes have some level of dysfunction, like we mentioned before, and no parent is perfect, but here are some examples of ways that parents can use their authority to nurture and love and affirm their children. First of all is with affection. I remember watching a TED Talk one time where it was a um, speaker who was talking about affection with young boys. It was about men and how men are socialized. And he, he basically spoke out to an audience of adult men and said, at what age do you think that it's appropriate for a man to stop hugging and kissing his son? And he just said, you know, just give me a guess. And one person said, I don't know, 12. Another one said, oh, nine. Another one said 16. And then when he got finished asking all of the questions, he said, the answer is never. We should never stop giving affection to our sons. It's never outdated or no longer a necessity to show affection to our sons. We should always do so. And I remember that really, really touched me. And I don't think that there really is 
a true understanding of how important it is for people to show affection and to touch, of course, in an appropriate way, our children. You know, I remember when my girls were small, I just was always giving them affection. I still give them affection. Even today, they're young adults, and I still do. And I remember I would, if we were going out somewhere, I would pick one of them up, give them a kiss on the cheek, put them in their car seat, fasten the belt, and then kiss them again. And then when we would get to the store, I would kiss them, take the safety belt off, pick them up, and give them another kiss. I just couldn't give them enough affection. Always, always, always to show them how much that they were valued and loved. And many times I used to do encounters, still do encounters, where we would do uh, these opportunities for people to come forward and respond to a talk that we would say. It was all about inner healing. And there would be an opportunity for them to come forward and to respond by coming up for prayer or for conversation or something that they wanted to unload. And there was one particular session where when in this case it was with working with women where they would come forward and I would just pray with them. And then I would just hug them like they were my little girls, like literally just put my hands on their face and just hug them. And the tears and the sobbing that would come. And it wasn't until that time that I realized that there are some people that are never hugged. There are some people that are never touched. That was a big shock to me because I always had affection growing up and I've always had it in my home. But there are some people that are never hugged. And that was one of the most amazing ways to minister to the people that came to these encounters to just show them that they're worthy of being hugged and touched. In Psalm 91 and 4, it says, God will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. I love that. I love the fact that God covers us with his feathers, that really that's what he's doing. We may not feel it, but he's got a big old wing that is just encompassing us with an embrace. That's the way God wants us to think about him, is that he's literally embracing us and we can find refuge. Some of you can remember when you were little and you were scared. Maybe there was a storm or you thought there was a monster in the room or whatever, and your mom or your dad or your grandmother or whatever would come and hold you and you would find refuge in that hug because you were afraid. And that's what God is saying that he is in Psalm 91 and four, that he's going to cover us with his feathers. The other way that we can show our authority in a positive way is investing in spending time with our children. It's so, so important that we spend time with them. A person in authority isn't too big or too proud or too you know, high and mighty to be able to sit on the floor and read a book to their children. That's one of the greatest ways that you can show your love to a child. Um, I remember at one point we were getting ready to do a children's encounter years ago and there were people that came from another country that were going to be leading the encounter and they spent time in a hotel room for a few nights in Connecticut praying over the children of Connecticut. And when they finished, they said that God showed them that many, many, many children in the state of Connecticut are very lonely. And that was a big shocker to me, but that there are a lot of very lonely kids. They might have great homes. They might have a lot of money. They might have a lot of electronics. They might have a lot of what you think that they should have, but they're lacking in that time being spent so it's really important to be part of their events, making it clear that you really want to be with them, making it clear that you enjoy them. 
even if it has to be with shorter spans of time and when you're able to just get involved in their lives, sitting on the floor playing Legos or blocks or just getting involved in their sports or activities or just hanging out with them and spending time with them, looking them in the eyes and hearing what they have to say. The other way that we can show our authority is by encouraging and advocating for our children. And again, I'm using examples of things that I have done as a parent. By no means am I saying that I, <laughs> I have been a perfect parent. I will be the first to admit that I haven't. But I remember there was one time that my daughter was being really mistreated in one of the um, dance activities that she was doing. Uh, the people that were choreographing were being very abusive, verbally abusive towards the other people in her dance team, and she was grieved by it. And so I gave her, you know, she was in high school at this point, but I gave her some advice, try this, and then she did, and then try this, and then she did, and then one more time. And finally, I went with her first thing in the morning, left a message for the dance teacher, and I said, this is it. We're going to have a conversation about this. And I sat there and I said, listen, this is what's going on. So I said, are you going to be speaking to the people who are choreographing this or am I going to be? Because I can go down to the studio and she said, I will be speaking to them. And she made sure that they went and apologized to every single one of those kids and did not return. So sometimes what we have to do in our authority is we have to advocate for our children. And sometimes we have to advocate for other people's children as well. So the other thing that I want you to be aware of before I close is that there's powerful things that we can say to kids and make them feel safe and secure. And one of them is encouraging words. And I'm going to end with a quote from The Help. Viola Davis plays a domestic named Abilene, and she is speaking to a young child who is neglected and abused. And she would say to her, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. And she would have the little girl speak that back to her. And so some of the things that we speak to our children, we're imparting to them like the episode on words and the power of words. That's how we can use our authority to tell our children who they are and what they have in store for them. And so it's so important to give them safety, security, discipline and structure and all of those other things. Authority is a gift to others. Thanks for listening. In collaboration with IML Productions, this has been your host, Ginger Wilk, with That Which Matters. Thank you for listening.